Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by BetterHelp. Start living a happier life today and get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash missionlog. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash missionlog. This episode is also brought to you by Simply Safe. Take advantage of Simply Safe's holiday sale and get 40% off your new home security system by visiting simplysafe.com slash mission log. Again, that's Simply Safe, S I M P L I S A F E dot com slash mission log for 40% off your entire system. Hurry, this offer ends soon. This episode of Mission Log is also brought to you by the Eagle Moss Hero Collector Shop, home of the official Star Trek collectibles and favorites from Battlestar Galactica, the Orville, Stargate, Space 1999, and more. Enjoy special savings when you go to getyourtrekon.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 428, Penumbra. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we set ourselves adrift on a course to run headlong into the morals, meanings, and messages contained in each and every episode of Star Trek. This week, Penumbra, the one where Captain Sisko gets to making retirement plans while Ezri and Worf... Wait, am I reading that right? Mm, I guess we'll get to that in the discussion. Yeah, we'll just hold off on that thought for a moment. I will be right back with this week's trivia right after Norman tells all of you how to reach us. But that is after a word from our friends over at Eagle Moss. Fans of the official Star Trek Starships from Eagle Moss Hero Collector, be it the original collection of the five to six in Starships and the larger Star Trek Discovery Collection, or even the larger XL editions, those of you looking to complete your collections or simply purchase single starships for yourself as holiday gifts, well, your ships have come in literally. I like that. I like that. Yes, you know our friends over to Eagle Moss. The Hero Collector Shop is open and they are ready to do business with you because listeners of Mission Log can enjoy special savings now, right now. Stop what you're doing right now. <laughs> Go to Eagle Boss. Go to GetYourTrekOn.com. Remember it, GetYourTrekOn.com now, and take a look at the vast variety of ships waiting for you there. Many of them are shop exclusives. 
Yeah, just taking a look at ships from Star Trek Lower Decks. I mean, there's the fan favorite but least important ship in the Federation. Oh, come on. The California-class USS Cerritos. You had the Federation Luna-class uh, USS Titan under the command of none other than Captain William T. Riker, 5678. And remember, these are all officially authorized by CBS Studios, and each and every model is die-cast, hand-painted, and comes with a display stand plus an in-depth magazine featuring exclusive artwork and highlighting the ship's history, design, and place in Star Trek lore. I love those magazines. They're so <laughs> they're, they're, they're like a good. collectible on their own. I mean, the ships are great, but yeah, I mean, they're amazing. But wait, there's more. There are <gasps> ships and other collectibles from Battlestar Galactica, the Orville, Stargate, even Space 1999. Ah, those because sweet, you need sweet eagles. Yes. All the eagles. <laughs> so there's something for everyone on your shopping gift list. And when you go to getyourtrekon.com now, like John says, just drop everything, do it now, you're also eligible for an extra 25% off site-wide, and certain exclusions do apply. So you know what to do. Engage at getyourtrekon.com today. Do it now. Getyourtrekon.com. And a big thank you to Eagle Moss. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion with this week's trivia. Well, thank you for that, Norman. This week's episode, Penumbra, was written by Rene Echeverria. We just talked about Rene when he wrote Chimera, and he's got two more credits before we wrap up DS9. Uh, a word about where we are, though. Yes, DS9 was all about exploring serialized storytelling on Star Trek, but it's interesting to note that while the production knew that the final nine episodes in total of 10 hours would be serialized, they didn't actually pre-plan it. They were still pretty much going week to week in many regards, knowing some of the big picture items, but not really knowing how they'd get there. This was directed by Steve Posey. Well, look no further than Steve's last team up on DS9 in the director's chair for Renee's previous episode, Chimera. This one is the third of four that Steve directed for the series, and we mentioned some of his other sci-fi and fantasy credits in previous podcasts. We have the Gander as the name of the runabout that we get to know briefly in this episode. Funny thing. It was Renee's decision to originally name this one Ganges, but the rest of the team had to remind him that that runabout was destroyed in a previous episode. He didn't care. He thought there could be multiple ships with the same name, but he got overruled by no one less than Rick Berman himself, and feeling salty, Renee named it as close as he could by calling it Gander after the river in Newfoundland. And let's talk about our guest stars. As you might expect going into the home stretch, we're focused on the characters we've seen for a while now. Other than a short glimpse of some unnamed Breen and a handful of Bajorans on the station, our guest stars are pretty much who you'd expect when you bring back characters like Dakot, Cassidy, Yates, Damar, Wayun, the female changeling, and 
a return appearance of Cisco's prophet mom, Sarah. Okay, time for the elevator pitch. Picture it, way una demar, in an apartment, and cue the theme from the odd couple. Prologue. Things are good on Deep Space Nine. Captain Sisko is in his quarters with Cassidy Yates, and he's showing off pictures of a little spot on Bajor he likes. In fact, he likes it so much, he bought it. And he fully intends to move there when all this war business is over. He feels like it'll be home, like he's destined to be on Bajor. Cassidy understands that Ben's being the emissary and all practically makes it his destiny. Meanwhile, in the replimat, Esri catches up with Bashir and O'Brien, relating her latest run-in with Captain Baudet. That's when Colonel Kira comes in with some bad news. The Rotaran and the Karaga both encountered a Dominion attack near the Badlands. The Rotaran made it, but the Karaga did not. That's the ship Worf was on, and he wasn't aboard any of the escape pods that were rescued. Act 1. With Worf missing, Esri Dax is in a daze. Even Quark tries to cheer her up, in his own special way, by remarking that Worf wouldn't go to Stovacor, knowing he owes the bar for three barrels of blood wine. The Defiant has been out there looking at the Badlands, but the call Esri doesn't want comes in the middle of the night. It's Captain Sisko, saying that he's pulling the Defiant out of the search because they're being tailed by a dozen Jem'Hadar ships. He's sorry. On Cardassia Prime, watching these maneuverings from a safe distance are Wayun and Damar. Once the Defiant leaves the area, Wayun orders the Jem'Hadar ships back to protect the Ketracel White facility over Damar's protest, who thinks they should follow and finish off the Defiant. They spar a bit over the strategy when Wayun reminds Damar of his position, especially as Damar complains of the heavy Cardassian casualties they've experienced. No matter... Wayun's only concern is for the founder, the female changeling who is in her quarters nearby. She asked for a private subspace comm channel in her room, and the only thing Damar needs to know is that the details are none of his concern. Dealing with the loss of Worf, Esri walks into his now empty quarters. Everything in there brings back memories shared with Jadzia, the Batleth, their wedding picture. Later, when the Defiant returns, Kira has an update for the captain. A runabout is missing, and so is Esri Dax. Act 2. Sisko knows Dax. Whether it's Curzon or Jadzia or Esri, he calls the stolen runabout and even entertains it when Esri pretends interference is blocking their communication. She's determined, and he won't try to stop her. In fact, he'll send the Defiant sensor logs so she isn't looking in the same place as they were. Then Esri gets creative. She arrives at the edge of the Badlands where the Karaga was destroyed, and she asks the computer to estimate the trajectory of the portside escape pod once it was ejected. Then, along the same route, she drifts. Captain Sisko has moved on to another topic, architecture. He's tinkering with a model of his planned home for Bejor, and Cassidy looks on with interest. As they discuss moving walls and opening up the kitchen, Sisko tells her that he thinks of this as their house. And yes, that was a proposal. The captain wants to marry Cassidy Yates. She can't even say yes before kissing him, and Sisko reveals his next trick 
In the miniature of the house, he stashed a wedding ring, hidden in plain sight on the tiny dining table. Back to the runabout gander, Esri drifts along, getting space-sick in the process, but then she spots an escape pod lost in the turbulence of the Badlands. She locks on with her tractor beam and beams aboard a slightly injured and quite stunned wharf. He's surprised to see her, alone, but Esri says the Defiant had to call off the search. She's just doing what she would do for any fellow officer. Of course. As she tends to his wounds, the closeness is a little uncomfortable. Worf takes care of himself, while Esri awkwardly gets back to the ship's controls. Act 3. On Cardassia, the female changeling is at her new communications array when a groveling Wayun comes in to check on her progress. The hardware is fine, but the founder is not. The virus that has infected her and the rest of the Great Link is progressing, and the Vorta scientists have not found a cure. She tells Wei Yun to execute their current team, then have their clone replacements pick up the slack. Wei Yun obliges, says he'll also need another sample, one which the founder pulls from her face. Back on DS9, Jake and his dad have a little lighthearted talk. Of course, Jake approves of the marriage. He's the one who introduced his dad to Cassidy in the first place. And for that, Jake will be the best man at the wedding and plan the bachelor party. Racing home, the runabout gander's two occupants are tense. Esri is prodding Worf for anything. How he must have sung Klingon opera while he was waiting. How Alexander is doing. Worf isn't interested in any chatter. Certainly none of it that had to do with Jadzia. The conversation isn't going anywhere. Esri tries to connect with Worf on any commonality they share, but it mostly has to do with Jadzia, and Worf forbids it. As if it couldn't get worse, Jem'Hadar fighters show up and start taking shots at the runabout. As the damage gets heavier, they have no recourse but to grab a few essentials and beam down to the nearest planet, where they can safely watch the shuttle burn up without them. With nobody around, Ezri and Worf will have to secure themselves and get in touch with DS9 as soon as they can for a rescue. That is, as long as one of them grabbed a communications system. Which they didn't. Act 4. Sisko and Cassidy's wedding plans start to come together. There's talk of the efficient and the best man, but their personal conversation becomes a matter of public interest the longer they sit in the replimat. What they intended as a small private ceremony may not go that way since the emissary is in high demand. A young Bajoran girl approaches and asks if she can be part of the wedding party, believed to be the biggest wedding Bajor has ever seen. It's news to Ben and Cassidy, but the gathering crowd indicates this is going to be a bigger deal than they anticipated. Damar sits in his quarters on Cardassia, complaining to himself and his date about Wei-Yun when they are interrupted by a visitor, Dukat. He's here to share the good word about the love of the Pa-Wraiths, but also to ask a favor from his old friend. Speaking of old friends, Ezri and Worf have a fire going at their campsite. Worf returns from the hunt with an animal he speared for dinner. He's had too many field rations and needed something fresh, much to Ezri's disgust. She just keeps working on their com badges to try to reach DS9. This all raises more arguments. Jadzia's name comes up again, as does her time with Captain Baudet, and the differences in the men in her life, which raises Worf's jealousy and ire. 
When Esri drops the C word, calling Worf a coward, well, that's more than he can take. And when he calls her a word in Klingon, she raises her hand toward his face. He grabs it. They kiss. Cut to cuddling by the fire sometime later. Then a rustling in the woods around them, and two figures step into the campsite, weapons raised, and fire on Esri and Worf, stunning them both. Act 5. It's Breen, guys. It's the Breen. We've got Breen here, and they've captured Esri and Worf for some reason, even though they don't have a dog in this fight. But hey, a Breen holding cell is the perfect place for these two to make sure there are no regrets about what happened last night, especially given that old trill rule about not getting involved with past lovers after the symbiont has moved to a new host. Oh well. The Breen ship that picked them up now makes a turn to somewhere. That gives us time to check in on Cardassia, where Wayun is monitoring Federation fleet movements, and Damar is called away to his quarters, presumably for some female company. But when Damar arrives, he's greeted by Dukat, a changed Dukat, a Dukat who, with the help of Damar's recommended plastic surgeon, now looks like a Bajoran. Assuredly, it's only a temporary transformation. Sisko, in his quarters, works on his house model, when suddenly the prophets call him with another discussion. This time, the wormhole alien is in the guise of Sarah, and she warns Sisko that marrying Cassidy would be a bad idea. It's not meant for his path, and if he does, he'll know nothing but sorrow. Sisko pushes back. He's a person with his own feelings, and what he wants is to marry Cassidy. Too bad. The prophet says that's not for him to have. His biggest trial is coming, and he needs to stay on the path. Whereabouts of Ezri and Worf? Still unknown. The end. That was a lot of plot to just compress, John. But as we do in our observations, we're going to take a lot of that compressed plot and kind of expand on it a little bit. So let's start with you. Let's start with uh, your observations. Yeah. What did you come away with at the start? You know, it, it, this, is this segment of the show I love because it's always a mixed bag. There are big things, there are little things, there are fun things, there are maybe some some mild, good-hearted criticisms. I want to start out with something that I thought was really cool, and it's it's because every now and then we, we take a little good-natured shot at some of the effects that don't hold up and how, like, you look really closely at a pad and it's just like a printed, you know, literally like a piece of paper, and mm-hmm. you can kind of tell sometimes, you know— the opening of this uh, teaser was great yeah. because it's a big pad. It was a big, beautiful photo of this spot on Bajor, which I'm sure was up here in the Hollywood Hills, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but it was just kind of like uh, graphically it looked great. It kind of throws you off because you open thinking you're actually in that space. And it's one of those predictive future technologies that now is so common. You pick up your pad, you pick up your tablet, and you mostly use it for pictures. So that just felt like a very real kind of use of that technology. I loved it. I I thought it was actually a really good, a a good graphic, and it kind of like just drew you into the opening scene. And I was like, yeah, "Yeah, 
like if I was like going through Zillow or something like that, I'd be like, yeah, sure. You know, pictures yeah. of your dream house, pictures of your property. I thought right. that was pretty cool. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I love that. Um, I know that we'll get into this a little bit later, but I, I just have to <laughs> – in that opening scene, you know, you've got Cassidy saying to uh, Ben, I guess when your mother turns out to be part profit, words like destiny begin to mean something. Mm. This is a weird road to go down. <laughs> And I just, I'm just gonna park that right there, and we'll, we'll come back to it. We'll, and I will park right next to you. All right, very good, very <laughs> good. Uh, speaking of dialogue, every now and then I like to call out some good ones. Uh, here's O'Brien and Bashir talking to Ezri about Jadzia's former <laughs> fling, and and I just love Bashir saying, personally, I don't know what Jadzia ever saw in the man. And O'Brien says, well, his brains. Come on, come on. That The DS9 writers, they have been waiting to write that line about Captain Baudet for years. And my hat mm-hmm. is off to them to uh, to finally use it. I know, smart. Very smart. Yeah. Uh, we're actually going to get probably a little bit more into Captain Baudet more than probably more people would want to realize. You know, I, I'm down episode. for that. I still, you know? look, I want a Captain Baudet action figure. Uh, I want him to talk too much. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to I see that brain. And just uh, apparently he's a pretty sexy guy. So, you know, yeah. I'm thinking he would look like the alien artifact that Indiana Jones was chasing in the Crystal Skull. That's what Ooh. I'm thinking Captain Baudet's head would look like. That's just Okay. Me. Okay. You I, know? I'm down with that. Yeah. At least, you know, for action figures purposes. But he's very sophisticated. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. Naturally. Yeah. Uh, speaking of sophisticated, let's talk about the the really wonderful callback in the writing with the Sona Ketracel White facility. Wow. Yes. Right? Yes. I thought that was so cool. Just a, You don't need to linger on it. it. It was just this nice little callback. thought that was cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, and man, speaking of callbacks and returns, so nice to see Wayun and Damar's verbal sparring back in full force. Oh, I, love, I could watch a whole episode of just them. But there is something different, though. You can start... Feeling Damar just pushing back just a little bit, like, you know, asking Wei Yun if he actually cares about the Cardassian lives that are being lost, if he actually cares about their involvement at all, if he actually cares if he's standing in the same room with him. I love that there's stress in this relationship now. It, is Probably for the, the first can, time. It, is that just the Kanar talking, though? <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or exacerbating it. Who knows? Yeah, you yeah. Know? Yeah, you know the the canard it, it pops up in in the most opportune of circumstances. It does. I, I love seeing Cisco in arts and crafts mode, like all yes. the way back when we were you know he was doing making the Bajoran sail ship with Jake and just getting into this this non uh, non leadership non Starfleet non the world is going to end type of mode. Like yeah. he's just a guy building his retirement house, thinking of the future. And enjoying that moment. Love yeah. that. Yeah, I, I do too. And that that is it, something that Star Trek is good at when it takes the time to do it. It, it gives these physical things purpose, whether it's, you know, like Captain Picard's uh, sextant or his Shakespeare book or whatever. Mm-hmm. There, there are things that have meaning. And it's such a minor point in this episode, but that, that model house, it's so neat. I mean, this is a century in which you can build literally anything in 3D holography. He, he could have just, you know, gone up to the hollow suite and said, ooh, make a wall like this and make a table like this, you know. But he's doing it by hand. 
Yeah. And and you just sort of assume like, okay, did the parts come from the replicator? Did did he search for a pre-built or did he just, you know, it, does he go so far as to tell the replicator like, I want a piece that's this long and this tall with this texture and I'll make five of these, now two of these. And then he sort of lets his creative juices go. Um, I, I need to know all of these things. I need to know if that's how architects do it in the future or, or if he's just old school. It, it raises so many questions. And it's such a real moment. I also love uh, when when Cassidy, she makes a little bit of a joke about it. But, hey, you know, why not the Emissary Special Reserve wine? I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> yes. Right? And hey, you know yes. what? I mean, they've made other wines before, you know, in real time, you know, mm-hmm. with all the different offerings from Star Trek wines. Yeah. There's one. There's Let's something that I think, you know, Deep Space Nine fans, I think they would buy this. Absolutely. Right? I'm down. I'm there. I love it when Avery doesn't play heavy and he plays tender. I think he plays tender actually really well. And I think that he and uh, Penny Johnson, Gerald, they just know their chemistry. They just know how to, to play off their nuances. The The proposal scene was wonderful. So yeah. well acted. So there, there was that nervous butterfly type of feeling that both of them were having. You could feel it come off their characters through yeah. the screen. I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, also, in that same vein, when Esri was walking through uh, Jadzia's and Worf's quarters and having all those wonderful off-screen voice clips that you know that featured Terry back as Jadzia talking about uh, Kiryoshi, talking about when they were stranded on the planet together, uh, talking about all these memories that were so recent, you can't help but not be emotionally stirred. By yeah. something like that, you know? Yeah. 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 But to, to lighten things up a little bit. So what's it, what is it with runabouts on Deep Space Nine and people just taking them? Because this <laughs> sure. is the thing, right? Odo is bad at his job. It's like, uh, it, it, you know, every week or month or so when they do a report, uh, Captain Sisko, I'm sure, sits down to Odo and he's like, look, you're doing great on so many things. I, I still... I just I need for you to pay attention to the runabouts. Pay attention to the airlocks. Please add that to your list. If you have to hire somebody else, do it. But please, we have a problem with this. Yeah. And and the the comedy kind of hits keep on coming because for those of you who kind of like gave the scene in Star Trek Five between you know, Chekhov and Sulu getting lost in the woods, yes, the navigator and the helmsman being lost in the woods, and then Chekhov going, yeah, yes, it's freezing, it's freezing. Um, yeah. Ezra's doing the same thing here. Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Right? And yeah, when she was yeah. in the shuttle and, and, and faking static with Cisco, come on, man. It's a, it's a it, tradition. It was fun. Right? It was fun. Why not? Yeah. Uh, I do love it in her dialogue with uh, Worf. And she asks, you know, what about Alexander? What about him? I, and, you know, <laughs> a phrase like that is just reflex at this point for Worf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I'm sure somebody gets so much as Alex out of, out of their mouth, and he's just ready to, to dismiss it completely. Also reflexive, John, was Worf's attraction to mm. Esri, but not Esri. So, yeah, yeah. I'll, let me repark that car okay. right next to you, and yep. uh, we'll get yep. back to that in a second. Yeah, well played. Um, I do like, oh, man, the female changeling ordering the scientists to be executed. That is some straight-up Ming the Merciless stuff right there. Like, right. the team's not working fast enough. Cool. Execute them to motivate their replacements. <laughs> Right. Wow. Wow. Yeah. She needed like Clytus, like uh, uh-huh. a, a Clytus clone. 
yes. I told William to do that. Yeah, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> perfect, perfect. Uh, there's an interesting thing going on with uh, both sides of the equation of the war because she has this distrust of the Cardassians. And now Starfleet has uh, the distrust of the Romulans as seen mm-hmm. in a previous episode, you know, in Inter Arma Enum Silent Legis. Ooh, nicely done. Yeah. And without copy in front of me. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you're starting to see the cracks on both sides of the superpowers, which is very interesting to see because ultimately that happens, you know, when you're making these unholy alliances in a way. Yeah. Hey, hey speaking of uh, Inter Arma, which is where we last saw Admiral Ross, uh, I love this proposal from Ben Sisko. Sure, why not have Admiral Ross perform the wedding? I'm sure that he has plenty of time when he's not, you know, hiding in the shadows of the Federation's clandestine operations. That, that's Hey, maybe you could get Sloan to show up and be the DJ. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've got it all planned out for you. DJ Sloan. Oh, DJ my God. Sloan. I'm never going to get that out of my head. <laughs> Oh, what have you done to me? Wicked, wicked, wicked. Yeah. Right? And you can totally see, like, Sadler doing that the way he did mm-hmm. death and Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Oh, totally. stop. Right well, he's already got the outfit. I mean, he looks cool in the black leather, so, you know. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, my God. So good. <laughs> the phrase of a thousand memes, DJ Sloan. <laughs> so I love moments um, that are very, they're real. They're kind of like these stolen moments that aren't really scripted or acted. They're just... They're natural between actor and actor or actor and actress. And I love it when Ciroc kisses Avery as Jake would kiss his father. I think that yeah. those moments, those yeah. beats are just perfect. Absolutely yeah. perfect. Yeah. Um, I also love that Esri was kind of giving Worf a lot of grief, trolling him about Klingon <laughs> opera, right? Uh-huh. I think that there's kind of like a little bit of this veil that's being crossed you know, this almost um, that that emotional barrier that's being transcended between who Ezri is and, and Jadzia's trill personality is starting to surface probably a little bit more. Yeah. Because the whole Jadzia would have understood. I thought we were supposed to bury that, right? I thought we were supposed to put that to the side and they, they don't. And then Worf brings it up and then. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah. But, but it, I will hand that to him. That That's some pretty clever, realistic writing is just right. like the thing that you keep telling yourself you can't think about, can't talk about, that becomes the thing. You know, that I, I, I buy all of that. Um, I also, I definitely buy War Spearing an Animal for Dinner. Uh, that is totally on track with him. Um, I wonder, though, they are on a planet they don't know much about. Uh, just use a tricorder first to make sure that whatever you eat doesn't kill you. You know, it could be, mm. you know, sort of like a planet of puffer fish and you you cut it the <laughs> wrong way and you're just, you're going to die. Hey, as long as you kill with a spear, you got to be able to eat it, right? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, of I course. I guess it's a rule. Yeah, yeah. So Captain Baudet, John, uh, mm-hmm. because he's such a huge topic of conversation. I have to say this. I have to get this off my chest. Okay. So if Worf saw Dax and Captain Baudet have dinner together and laughing and carrying on he'd risk court-martial i mean this is the captain yeah. remember yeah he'd grab that gallimite by his transparent skull mm-hmm. and cry out Bodet is a good day to die you're welcome <sighs> That's right. I hear the collective groans of everyone's emails out there. And you know what? I don't care. I love that line. It fuels you. Yes, that's right. Like all the Badlands fury, it fuels me. Uh, but speaking of going back to the Badlands and Warf and Esri, what's up with that kiss? What uh, is well, up? Uh, we're, yeah, we're, we're going to get to it. 
yep. repark Absolutely. that car. Mm-hmm. Yep. When I saw, I, I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry, folks. But when I saw that new, uh, that the, the, the surgically new face of the cot, all I could think of was, oh, hello, Mark. <laughs> A limo, that is, right? We walked oh, in, that's all I wanted to say. It's like, oh, hello, perfect. Mark. <laughs> That's perfect. And uh, for anybody who doesn't know that reference, just uh, just Google it. Uh, mm-hmm. That is awesome. And yeah, and he looked he looked great. Yeah, but weird, but yeah. great. Yes. Exactly. Nice. Yeah. I'm sure. Like Mark Alimo's like, thank God, I'm out of that thick yeah, right makeup. Right. I don't know for how long because I haven't seen any further than this. Oh, yeah. By the way, because you know, I, I, to, hand, to end on a happy note, because we're having so much fun, mm-hmm. the profits. If they aren't happy, no one is happy. And John, please repark your car right next to mine. One of the things that gets lost in this episode is that there are real estate agents on Bajor. Have there always been real estate agents on Bajor? We will get right back to Penumbra after a brief word from this week's sponsors. Hey, if you ever wanted to make your home feel safer, um, and why wouldn't you? Um, there is no better time than right now. Our friends at Simply Safe are giving Mission Log listeners 40% off their award winning home security. Now, we love Simply Safe because it has everything you need to make your home safe. Right there in the name. Indoor and outdoor cameras, comprehensive sensors, all monitored around the clock by trained professionals who send help the instant you need it. And Simply Safe was even named Best Home Security System of 2021 by U.S. News and World Report. And you can easily customize a system for your home online in minutes and even get a free custom recommendation from Simply Safe or several. These are Simply Safe's biggest discounts of the year. You can get a complete home security system starting at just over $100. There are no long-term contracts or commitments, and it's a really easy way to start feeling a bit more peace of mind. So take advantage of Simply Safe's holiday sale and get 40% off your new home security system by visiting simplysafe.com/missionlog. Again, that's Simply Safe, S I M P L I S-A-F-E dot com slash mission log for 40% off your entire system. And hurry, this offer ends soon. This podcast is also sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check them out at betterhelp.com slash mission log. Now, we've talked about this before, Norman, and it's a really useful tool to think about therapy the way you would think about other very common issues in your life. Some analogies like um, you get your car tuned up regularly, you get the oil changed to prevent bigger issues down the road. Um, We get annual checkups. We go to the gym. Well, some of us not as often as we should, but we do it in order to maintain physical wellness and prevent injury and disease. We do chores regularly, so I've heard, (laughs) to avoid a giant mess of a house. So going to therapy is and should be just like all of these things. It is routine maintenance for your mental and emotional wellness to prevent bigger issues down the road. Now, listen and and take this part seriously and heartfelt. Going to therapy does not mean something is wrong with you. It means you're investing in yourself to keep your mind healthy. 
And BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So why invest in everything else and not your mind? And we do so with exercise, and we do so with diet. Why not your mind? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Mission Log. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Mission Log. All right, Norman, Penumbra. Penumbra is that, that moment of part light, part darkness as you're going into an eclipse. Uh, mm-hmm. What do we have here? What, what ideas will we eclipse with our discussion? You know, the first thing, John, that I, I really kind of came away with, and it was the very beginning of the episode, I, I loved how the discussion between Cisco and, and Cassidy started turning into almost kind of like a retirement plan. When this mm-hmm. war is over... I'm mm-hmm. going to build this house. I just bought land. You know, this is where I want to, you know, uh, sit on the porch, rock back and forth with my teeth in a glass, just like my great, great, great <laughs> yes. grandpa. I love moments like this because these moments, they turn our characters real. They, they take them off the page and make them relatable. And it made me start thinking about the reality of retirement. Mm. Do our careers, or in this case, Cisco, mm-hmm. because he's he's been a career Starfleet officer and in uh, 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 this hard-lined war for so long, does this career define him, or is he now feeling this urge to move on because destiny is pulling him that way? Is that destiny strong enough to make not just him, but think about our own destinies, like just do they do they inspire us when we wake up and think about we're more than these people that just labor for eight to ten to twelve hours a day and then try and catch up on family time as soon as work's over and then sleep and repeat that same patterns for say forty years? I mean, yeah, is that who we are? Right. I I, I feel you on this discussion uh, on a number of levels. I mean, I, I'll put aside the personal stuff just for a second here because I think you're hitting on something that I really respond to in Star Trek. And there's not, you know, one specific way to tell Star Trek stories. Um, I've always said, you know, it's a, it's a big tent. It's a stretchy format. You can get in there and kind of do whatever you want. But there are some people who don't like their Star Trek to have much time like you know, back home, you know, back on Earth or, or in this case, you know, uh, Cisco's presumed future home of Bejor. Um, and to me, I really relish those moments because mm-hmm. to me it grounds the characters and it improves and increases my connection to them. Because then I do feel like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're somebody who puts on the uniform for this part of your day. It may be very important to you. It may be a very long part of the day, but you're also a person. You also have a life. And when I try to take kind of the inspirational ideas of Star Trek that's about the future, I want to feel like there is a place in the future for human beings to be human beings, not just to be their jobs. And Mm – a long time ago on Mission Log, I kind of talked about this because Riker says it at some point, you know, that his life is his job. And I just kept thinking like, well, at some point you have to not be. 
<laughs> you know, and, and I'm glad that we got more out of Riker than just that. But in the moment, I'm sure that he meant it. Fortunately, Riker is a character that has grown and evolved over time, so it's not just that. Uh, but moments like that really make me feel connected to the story, really make me feel connected to the people, particularly in a show like DS9, where it's not just the sci-fi of the future, but there's also these very interesting ideas swirling around uh, Cisco about what he is meant to do, what his destiny is, which is, well, a word that will keep coming up in this discussion. Yeah, I think that with all of the galactic space battles, with all of these epic war stories, with the losses on both sides, with this tapestry of this almost untenable, unmanageable power struggle. I think the thing that really just speaks more true to me in this episode than episodes in the past or in the recent few is the reality of people getting married, people planning their future, mm -hmm. people looking for something other than this drama yeah. that has completely eclipsed in the penumbra of their <laughs> lives. Yeah. Right? And and look, you know, part of it is uh, – because we'll, we'll keep coming back to this in the remaining nine episodes here, remaining eight episodes, nine hours, um, that part of this is that classic setup of we sort of have to get reattuned to the characters. We have to get reattuned to them as people, not just as functions within the story. So right. I, and, and they did a nice job of this here. I mean, I, I might have some criticisms about uh, exactly where they went with these, but they're reminding you of the people and the relationships and how they have bigger lives outside of simply the politics of the war that's going on. I'm, I'm glad you brought up that word relationships, because if for, for people that have seen this episode before, I'm sure that we're not probably telling you anything that you don't already know. But if you haven't seen it in a long time, Notice how how they focus on the relationships in this episode, and not necessarily the romantic kind. Not like Odo and Kira. Their relationship is obviously a certain chemistry mm -hmm. of a certain relationship, and not necessarily even the romantic sense that we have with this burgeoning relationship with Ezra and Worf, and we'll get to that in a second. But look who we have paired off here in this episode. You have Cisco and Cassidy. Mm -hmm. You have Cisco and Jake. You have Ezri and Worf. You have Wayun and Damar. <laughs> oh, yeah. Then you, you have Wayun and the female founder. Uh, and then you have Wayun and Dukat and Dukat and Damar. Yeah. Because they're focusing on these very interesting pods in these relationships, I can't help feel that they're starting to create these end roads yeah. towards the finale because relationships create uh, these, these very emotional beats. For certain characters, they start establishing this connectivity of how we are invested in them now, even more so than before. And I have to believe – I don't know if, John, if you feel the same way or if our listeners do, mm -hmm. but I have to believe that they are setting up this foreshadowed calm before the storm. Oh, sure. Sure. You, you, you feel – I mean in a, in a different time, in a different type of movie, you know, if, if this were the World War II movie, 
it, it's all the stuff in the first act where it's like you, you get to know the the young guy who's leaving the girl behind at home, and you know you feel a little uh, a little slice slice uh, of his yeah. life, and then and then sure. you get to know the you know the the guy saying goodbye to mom and dad on the farm, and and you know it, you get these slices of their lives. So then you go into the the final storytelling, then you go into the big right. stuff, you know, and, and I think it's handled well here. It's not because we don't know who these characters are for the last six and a half seasons it's because we're trying to get them kind of out there on the chessboard to then finish the game yeah you know yep um but let's talk about i i I think this (laughs) (laughs) here we go uh i think the the setup with cisco and cassidy is interesting i think it, it it starts to get into these topics about who he is and what either he expects of himself or what he thinks others expect of him. But I want to talk about the other relationship here. I want to talk about Esri and Worf. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. All right. Let me just let me just get all these cards out of the table here. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, look, I, I know that I am not breaking any new ground here by calling out Worf for having some seriously backward and double standard views. We have talked about this before. I'm sure that other commenters, writers, podcasters have done the same thing. And their story here, it actually has me up to a point. I, I can absolutely buy that Worf and Esri need to work together. They need to get over their problems. And when I say their problems, I mean Worf mostly. Um, I can also buy that Esri cares deeply enough that she would do something foolhardy like try to go find him when he's lost and steal a shuttle or whatever. That that's that plays nicely into the history of Dax that, that we've had so far. Okay, then I'm going to raise a huge giant red flag. Worf pushes and pushes and pushes for details of Dax's personal life and then snaps and shames her when he doesn't like the answer. Worf, grow up, my man. I'm tired of this stuff from you. You you behave without honor as often as you drink blood wine, and that that needs to stop. Okay, so my next problem here, and this isn't specifically a character thing. It is also a big TV trope that I have a huge problem with. It's the argument that turns into a kiss, that then turns into sex, that fixes everything. And I'm sorry, but Worf, Worf is a pouty child here. He doesn't deserve this Dax, and she certainly does not owe him a single thing. So look, now we get to the point where they've had sex, and and what? Did that fix it? I, I'm not saying that it can't. Uh, the physical intimacy can can be there for uh, a number and variety of issues. But I'm also of the opinion that in this case, it also complicates matters. It's like Worf got a reward for his bad behavior. And Esri was what? Exercising her demons? I, because she has none in this case. She is just – she is a person with with autonomy and her own personality and her own set of experiences who happens to share these memories because of the Dax symbiont. But again, none of those other seven or eight personalities owe anything right. to Worf. It, it, it absolutely yeah. drove me insane. 
I like that you bring up the fact that there are all of these personalities in the Dax symbiont, because who exactly was Worf kissing? Yeah. He wasn't kissing Esri. He has no attraction to Esri. Yeah. Based on what we've seen so far in uh, since Esri has been introduced to us, uh, what, 16 episodes ago? Yeah. As a matter of fact, he's kind of repulsed by her in, in many situations. And the only time he ever addresses her with any kind of cordiality or, or concern is about how Jadzia would have done something, which obviously brings up a very sore topic in their conversation. So he's projecting in the worst possible way of how hurt he is and how Ezri herself is actually capitulating to his – to that – that soreness to that mm-hmm. want to that desire for no reason no. Right? because she's not even really attracted to him too. So Esri herself, you know, uh, is not, she's not acting as Esri. She's acting with this Jadzia personality starting to resurface and contest who Esri is. Yeah. That's where I see Worf at this, at this point, he's not kissing Esri as the person, he's kissing Jadzia as the memory. Yeah, and, and that's uh, – it is so completely unfair to Esri and it's this weird kind of band-aid on a much different problem going on with Worf. You know, yeah. Worf is still not over – and look, I will give him the reality that he may not be over Jadzia's death. That is fine. Jadzia is great. And even though we had our problems with their relationship as well, they had it. And and by the standards of, you know, the, the story that we're being told and the context of this show, yes, that, that was an actual relationship for these characters. So he is entitled to that. What he's not entitled to do is to whine and moan and be this, you know, uh, sad, hurt, pathetic man-child – when he's around Esri, who again owes him nothing. Yeah. She it, saved it his ass, me. okay? She just saved yeah. his ass. <laughs> it, it disappoints me a lot because we've seen some fantastic character growth uh, in Worf and in trying to deal with Jadzia's death. And, uh, um, you know, scenes like this just set him back so far, so quickly. And I wonder if I'm going to even care about his trajectory in the next eight episodes. I really right. am concerned about that. Yeah. Um, but even more so, more so concerning is, and, and I would like to read my actual title from the notes because, mm-hmm. first of all, it'll just lighten things up a little bit because we're talking about <laughs> such heavy stuff. Yeah. And secondly, because it's, it's ironic, but at the same time serious. Okay. Destiny. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, <laughs> right? We all know the, the yeah. line as as Manti Patinkin, you know, he uh, the, he performed it as Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride. But let's talk about this word, destiny. So when Cisco, you know, when Cisco has the the, the vision with the prophet Sarah, yeah. and she, he says that he wants to marry Cassidy, she replies, "You will only know sorrow." Now. They're talking about his destiny here, the destiny of the emissary. Yeah. So what does that mean exactly? Does that mean if he marries, then something will happen to his and Cassidy's relationship? Or if he marries is what Sarah says, a veiled threat, meaning if you marry, then we, the prophets, who you've just disappointed because you're not walking our destiny for you, will cause you to experience sorrow because you chose to defy us. Oh, yeah. 
Okay. You see what I'm, you yeah, see what I'm saying? Absolutely I do. And, and look, yeah. and that this is the problem with anything that comes from prophecy. Because unless prophecy is specific and not open to interpretation, then it's useless. Because mm-hmm. all he does is, well, uh, something bad. Well, well, what? Well, it's just, it's going to be bad. Okay, you know everything because you live out of time. Time has no meaning for you. You know past, present, and future. Like, you actually need to give some instruction here. Um, It's just yet one more example of how completely unfair the prophets are. Be sure to pre-order your copy of Coming to Know the Love of the Parates. Book two in our series on the power of positive thinking for negative results. Well, John, we've actually made it to the end of Penumbra, and sometimes we've walked in and out of that cast shadow, but I think we're probably going to step back into that cast shadow to take a look a little bit more at does the episode hold up, does it withstand the test of time, and then... See if we can maybe step out back into the light and see if there's a moral or meaning or message contained therein. All right. So let's start with you. Step into the shadow, John. Step into the penumbra. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting because very recently on Mission Log Engage, we answered a a comment from someone, an email uh, from a listener who was concerned that this part of the show, does something hold up? Does it stand the test of time? Uh, The definition there has changed. And yeah, I fully and readily admit to that. And it's about to change again, I think, for me anyway, because we're in this unique place where we're in a series that is Firing on all cylinders. Uh, This is a well-oiled machine. We're coming up to the end of its seven-season run, and they have made this bold, audacious plan to tell the final chapter in nine episodes. So when we look at these uh, uh, individual episodes, we're, we're sort of answering really two different questions, which is, you know, how do we like, how do we enjoy, does the episode on its own stand up? And then I guess ultimately we have to look back and say, do they all stand up together? Were, were there weak links in this story? You know, And this is going to be, I think, the hardest one because, as I said a moment ago, we're putting the pieces out on the chessboard. And I, I think as far as the, uh, the first chapter of these final nine chapters, it does that very well. If that is the goal of this show, it does it very well. We, we get reintroduced to most of the characters we need to be reintroduced to. We sort of finessed some of these relationships. But now let's look at the script itself. Let's look at the story itself. I, I can't get away from how strange this Esri Dax plotline is. Um, it's not an Esri story the way the Prodigal Daughter or Field of Fire were. But at the same time, it's this weird sort of focus where she does something brash and would probably – that thing would get anyone else in a ton of trouble. <laughs> we've, we've seen it on Star Trek before, I know. Um, but it, it just seems like a, a weird amount of time and effort spent on that when I feel like some of these issues could have been answered or handled already with her and Worf. And I think with a more deft hand in how it's handled with Worf, because right now you're just making me think that Worf looks bad. 
And I don't want to walk away from this series with that being my only thought of him. But again, you know, for an episode that is laying groundwork, building character relationships and motivations to get us through to the end, maybe still a strange choice to just be focused on Esri so heavily. I do like the idea that they need to have some sort of change in their non-relationship. Not convinced this was a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, while I have not been a fan of the whole Cisco is he or isn't he a god tease, I really appreciate how this episode humanized him. Those scenes with Cassidy are very genuine. And then his confusion, his hurt, uh, this conundrum he's presented with at the end, it made the stakes there feel higher, even though it raised my uh, distaste for the profits for this game that they're (laughs) playing. So um, I, I think this as an episode... It, it sort of is middle of the road for me. I, there are many scenes that I loved. The Wayun Damar stuff, I absolutely loved. The reveal with Dukat, fascinating. Can't wait to see where that goes because he's just nuts at this point. And then you accomplished something with Ezri and Worf, but I hate the way it was accomplished. So I can't say that this is a great episode. I think just as far as getting the pieces on the chessboard, it's fine. So I'm I, I'm maybe slightly better than 50% does this episode hold up. Sure, but it, it really is just going to be about its role in the other episodes. Uh, how about you? Yeah, you know, I'm kind of like where you are, John. It's, it's hard to say because uh, the way this episode ended and how we got there, it's still kind of up in the air as the story is continuing. There's no there, – there were no concrete or complete story threads that are in this episode. They're mm-hmm. all kind of hanging in the balance. So there are great world-building elements in this episode, and we've learned about the Prophet's ultimate destiny plan for Cisco, which I have issues with. His happiness is pretty much tied into whether or not he follows their plan. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, then you have this weird reuniting with Dax, and I say Dax because it's not necessarily Esri, it's Dax, it's Jadzia. Right, right. right? Uh, and how they have come together in this weird kind of unexpected way. Damar obviously is showing cracks in the armor because his attitude is easily changing towards the way that Wayun just cavalierly throws Cardassian lives at the war and doesn't care about them and just kind of pushes Damar's interests off to the side. He's just a figurehead. He's just a puppet. And I'll get to that later on in Morals, Meanings, and Messages. So... There's so much going on in this episode. I think that the writing was really good. I think that the scene changes were very agile. They were very quick. They didn't linger on any one certain point for too long so they could get back to all the different balls in the air that were being juggled. But you can feel that they're building up to something greater. And mm-hmm. yes, you know, you know, doing the IMDV dive and, and doing all of the kind of like internet dives, you know that the information's out there that this is the beginning of the end for this season. But I hope that at least the remainder of the season that we see, or the series, is just as, say, well-paced, well-written, with uh, greater character complexities. Because I I feel that right now I'm not on board exactly where they are going, mm-hmm. especially with Cisco, because I don't want this just to be a God-wills-it type of decision. Yeah. But we'll see. Yeah. Well, uh, okay, and then that that sort of brings me into the morals, meanings, messages, because 
that we're going to keep coming back to this word about destiny and, you know, whether or not the prophets will something. And all right, so here's the episode where we agree that we're putting the pieces together, we're getting the characters where they should be as the rest of the story unfolds. While the episode kind of works on its own, there, I, I, I feel like there isn't much in the way of a specific message, but I do appreciate how destiny gets kicked around um, and, and how this idea of what, what somebody maybe feels like they're supposed to do or they want to do. I mean, let's take Dukat, for example. His drive is so intense and so twisted that he has plastic surgery to make himself a Bajoran just so he can get away with something yet to be revealed. Uh, by the way, shades of you only live twice. Uh, just going <laughs> to throw that out there. <laughs> well said. Right? Right? Um, but his dedication to his belief or, or faith is so strong that this is what he has to do. He's just going to go to this crazy length, you know. Then there's Ezrian Worf. And if we take it at face value, there, there is something about them that still maybe kind of sort of belongs together. So they had to go there to figure this out. What's the end result of that? Did, did they get it out of their systems? Well, I guess we'll find out. But for now, anyway, they were drawn for some reason by that need to be together. Um, and, and it, it I, again, I think it's very unfair toward Esri. Um, in the best sense, it is just unfair. But there's something about Worf that is this draw and that he's got to, well, exercise those demons. Then there's Ben. Okay, someone who feels like he is drawn to Bajor and he wants or needs to be there once the war is over and he he wants or needs to be there with Cassidy. That That is what his heart is, what his God is telling him. But then the prophets show up and tell him, no, that's not your destiny. So who gets to decide it, it, in that case or, or anyone else's for that matter? Is destiny a thing that is out there that is guiding the players or is it the path that you cut for yourself? Because again, without any comparison to draw, a guy like Ben Sisko just has to go with what he feels is best, with what he thinks is best. All this other uh, uh, commentary from the prophets, it's just noise. It's confusing noise at that point. So in Star Trek's rather more humanistic tradition, I, I certainly tend to side with the latter and this idea that destiny is the thing that you cut out and make for yourself. And I really wonder how DS9 will let its characters have that or they will they ultimately just be – players in some other grander scheme and that's what we're toying with here so that that that's the theme that i'm sensing even if there's not necessarily a direct message here how about you man well i mean before i jump into mine what what disturbs me so much about this this proposition about destiny that you're bringing up mm -hmm. if Cisco follows the path of destiny that the prophets have set out before him and follows it to the nth degree. And then you take Sarah's attitude of, I, I brought you into this world so that you would fulfill this destiny. That means that every single thing that Cisco has encountered that may or may not have jeopardized his life, he was protected by the prophets so that he would reach this destiny, yeah. which means that everything Everyone he's lost, every situation that he's been put into has been predetermined, charted course 
for where he's going to end up at the end of this series. Everybody that has evolved around his orbit in their lives, regardless of their religions or not, have been interfered with by these prophets to get Cisco to get to the end game. Well, think back to the pilot. Think back to Emissary, where you've got the prophets asking Ben Cisco, "Why do you live here?" When he, he he's still racked with this memory of Jennifer's loss. Okay, well, by this point, we're basically saying, "Well, yeah, that 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 was destined to happen. That had to happen. That this." horrible traumatic thing and no matter what you did it was going to happen anyway because we had to have you end up here at ds9 next to the wormhole that's there's something horrific about that it's really hard to swallow right now i hope throughout the course of the next eight episodes that we'll just see a little bit more exposition on that but as of right now it's a very very difficult pill to swallow but At least for me, though, I didn't go down that road for morals, meanings, and messages. After watching this episode a couple times, I actually thought that there was a really interesting kind of cautionary tale about charlatanism. Hmm. Charlatanism in our lives is a very dangerous – it's a very dangerous dynamic. And if you're not aware of what that is, here's a brief etymology lesson. 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 (laughs) As as Sir Sean Connery would say, lesson. (laughs) Nice. But in medieval times, people claiming that medical skills they had uh, or they did not have roamed throughout Italy, selling quote-unquote medicine that was often completely worthless. These pretenders came from a village called Soreto, and as a result, Soretano, meaning inhabitant of Soreto, became an epithet for a quack physician. In addition, these frauds used the practice chatter of a circus barker. The Italian word for chatter is chiarare, and chattering was so associated with the seretano that the spelling of the word shifted from chiartalano. <laughs> By the early 17th century, we had anglicized the Italian word to charlatan and adopted it as our own. What does this all mean? Because a charlatan is a fake or a phony, someone posing of actual reputable importance and this is where I see Damar bringing this all mm. the way back mm-hmm. to one of the characters who I think is going to be a very central, pivotal character in this endgame process. He's struggling with accepting that his position is just that, an exercise in charlatanism, both in this episode and episodes that we've seen prior leading up to this one. Charlatanism is extremely dangerous because eventually living as and with that long-term lie will cause you and those around you irreparable harm. Damar is beginning to feel the effects of this as Wayun and the female changeling exclude him more and more from their plans and the end game. And there have been times and not always in this episode, but in previous exchanges with Wayun and in recent episodes past where you can feel this, the seething hatred that Damar has for the founders. But he rose up in the ranks where he is now because Ducat imploded, not because he earned it. Dukat was basically vacated his power and Nazar Habor's a vacuum so that Damar was thrown into that position. We saw that when he declared that huge statement of, I'm in charge and Cardassia will survive because of now me. Right. Right? So what has he done? He's brought this charlatanism upon his people and he's caused them just extreme amount of damage getting in bed with the Dominion being the result of all the lives that are being lost that way you doesn't care about. 
It's all on Damar. So, yeah, the harm that he's come, uh, that has come by his people is because he wanted to, he wanted to have his Kanar and his bedmates <laughs> and everything else along with that power, uh-huh. but at what price? And yes, he's already sealed the fate of the Cardassian, the Cardassian people, but what will he be able to do in the next eight episodes to try and reverse that process and salvage what's left of him as a Cardassian? This is interesting. Damara is going to play a larger part in your grand unified theory of DS9, which we, we haven't visited in a long time. <laughs> but That's the way I see it, because you don't start planting these, planting these seeds mm-hmm. without these seeds having to grow somewhere. Yeah. We know that Cisco and the Prophets have had this long-standing um, uh, you know, detente of whether they are or whether they aren't, whether he is or whether he isn't going to fulfill their destiny. But Damar is just a man, mm-hmm. right? He has a he's a simple man with simple wants and simple desires, and charlatan charlatan attitudes they never command respect because people know that they're frauds. So what happens when he doesn't want to be a fraud anymore? Ooh. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, till death do us part. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. Remember, always look for the union label, never let them see you sweat, and always grab the comm unit, we'll leave the light on for you. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.